0: Last week was the sovereignty of Christ, the head of the church. Where do we get our marching orders? Where do we get our commands? Where do we get what to do as a church? This morning we will look at the submission of the church, the biblical church, her submission. But for now, a bit of a review from last week. We looked at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, which says, "...He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation." For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, plainly, you see his sovereignty in creation, but also in his sustenance of the world in an ongoing fashion today. He keeps the earth spinning. Were he to stop and take a breath or a Sabbath from the work of sustaining the world, it would disintegrate in an instant. So he is not only creator, but he is sustainer of all things. In John 10 verse 18, we saw his sovereignty in uh, the laying down of his life. He says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my Father. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 shows us his headship of man, his sovereignty over man. I want you to understand, Paul says, that Christ is the head of every man. Man might think he is his own man. Uh, I think I've shared with you sometime in the past, my sister many years ago worked for a man who had built a business and uh, she was invited to an employee party at his home. She said she and a Co-worker pulled up to the house and there was a statue of that man in his front yard and there was a, a little moniker at the bottom that said self-made man. <laughs> and believe me, it was a tall statue, much taller than the man she worked for, interestingly. <laughs> Yet uh, the man's business uh, crumbled within just a few years thereafter. It's not always going to happen that way, but it certainly is an interesting outcome. We saw that he is sovereign in salvation, Colossians 1 verse 13 for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins we've seen in our study of first peter that we have been caused to be born again and you if you have uh, had any awareness of what it is like for a baby to be born you know that the baby is not involved except in a passive sense and the baby responds by crying and ultimately responds by learning to walk and talk and do other things and eat and care for himself. But the actual bringing about of that life is a work of the Lord and the Lord alone. Even as Ken read to us this morning from John chapter 1, verse 13, it is not of man's will, but of God. In John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. To whom? To my sheep. Those who had not believed but were my sheep, but because they were sheep, they believed. Verse 28, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We looked at the authority or the sovereignty of Jesus in Paul's words to the Thessalonians, where he has proclaimed the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. He does nothing to engender a high view of self, indicating that they somehow brought themselves to Christ. He doesn't say anything like that ever in any of his writings. He does, though, in 1 Thessalonians 4, proclaim the faithfulness of the Thessalonians who once saved received the word of God as the word of God, not as the word of men. If you look at chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 13, you see this commendation from Paul to the Thessalonians that they receive the word of God, and they do so as the word of God, not as the word of men. They had developed the discernment to know the difference. And this is one of the primary sources of spiritual maturity. The person who grows in spiritual maturity is developing the ability to understand the distinction between that which is man-made and that which is God-made. He looks at the whole of Scripture. He doesn't pit the Bible against the Bible. So as he grows in his maturity, he is humbled by the truth that there are the secret things of the Lord that belong to him. And yet, that which has been revealed has been given to us that we and our sons might observe them, that we might obey him. And again, that will be the impetus of our study this morning. We will look at how a person can and does obey the Lord. And again, here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. So this is a uh, it's a gentle Um, request, he uses the word request, but then exhort, a little bit of a stronger term, and it really is an encouragement. To do what? That as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God. Don't forget that terminology. There is a movement, I'm going to talk about it today, there is a movement that says you don't do anything to please God. You can't please God, even though we are told by Paul in Ephesians For that children please God by what? By obeying their parents. Paul says here, you know how you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk. So you are involved in pleasing God. The Thessalonians certainly were. That you do what then? Excel still more. So he's commending them for their consistent faithfulness in how they walk and please God, that you excel still more means then that they would continue to do that. They would do it further. You remember he has said, I request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus to do this. What? Excel still more in walking and pleasing God, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The the commandments given to them were given by the authority of the God-man, Jesus Christ, that They would obey him. And then we mentioned in 1 Timothy 6, Paul's words, his term here, uh, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ as the blessed and only sovereign. The King James uses the term potentate. It's a powerful term. Our our language has given up that term, sadly. Uh, But it really speaks of the singular and exclusive omnipotence of God. What is the difference between omnipotence and sovereignty? Omnipotence is ability. Sovereignty is the actuation or the constant uninterrupted exercise of that power. Yes, he is omnipotent, but he is sovereign, and there is a difference. His sovereignty is the constant, never uninterrupted exercise of his ability. We saw that in Colossians 1, verse 18, that he is also the head of the body, and this really is more germane to our study, this study that we're doing in the, the nature of the church. What is the church? What does the church do? What does the church not do? How do, how do you and I, as members of the body of Christ, uh, which is the term from which we get the word membership, how do we, as members of the body of Christ, exhibit faithfulness to the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is our head. Back to Colossians 1.18. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So reconciliation of that which God has designed to be reconciled to Christ will come to pass, and it will be, uh, it will come through the vehicle of Christ's headship, that he is Lord of the church. He is master of the church. He is the Savior and King of the church. In chapter 2, then, in Colossians, verse 19, uh, he is referred to as the head from whom, I love this illustration, you know, you can't miss this the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God so you see God's authority in Christ Christ's authority in headship over the body but that the body is involved in submitting to that authority and that's really kind of a precursor to what we're going to talk about today You see the authority of the Lord, but you don't see what some would refer to as a robotic response to that sovereignty. That's not sovereignty. To say that sovereignty means that we somehow just, you know, do what we're supposed to do because God makes us do it. He forces us into submission. That's not sovereignty. In his sovereignty, Christ has not only commanded and determined the outcome, he has determined the means. And the means is your obedience. It's your submission In which you are volitionally involved. You do respond to the duty given you in the Scripture. And this causes palm sweating for those who have only seen one side of man's role in the Scripture. This results in a nervous, and really agitated response from those who refuse to see the reality of what God's sovereignty actually is and how it results in a loving submission from those who are not always loving and therefore need to acknowledge the duty the scripture has given them and to respond to the authority of God. That Christ is authority. Should be everything to us. That he would have first place in everything, that we would see our responsibility just as in your human body, the joints and ligaments as they supply to the head, that which results in growth caused by God. That's Paul's terminology. Think of yourself as a ligament, as a part, as a member who is involved. If you're not involved and you step out, you skip out, you you take a break from obedience, but you decide, you know what, I'm not going to be a Christian for a few weeks. You know, they don't need me. What does that say to the rest of the body? What does it say to the Lord? What does it do to the rest of the body? Well, you know what happens when a ligament tears, when a tendon snaps, when a bone breaks, when a limb is lost and proves to be dead. The body suffers. So what does the body do? The members of the body that prove to be faithful, those who are approved, compensate part of that compensation is not just undergirding and strengthening those who are yet faithful, but to go get those who have chosen to be unfaithful, to love them unto restoration. That's what church discipline is all about. In Ephesians 5 verse 23, Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife. So we're talking here about marriage, but marriage is to be a what a symbol or a microcosm of the church. Listen to this. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So often in marital counseling, this isn't even brought up. A, a pastor or a counselor or a friend in Christ might completely avoid the issue, or at least forget the issue of the fact that a marriage is intended to look like the church. It's intended for the man to represent the head, that he would love his wife as Christ loves the church. I remember asking a man that one time, do you love your wife as Christ loves the church? And he said, yes. I explained that. I took five, six, seven minutes to explain that, and his head dropped. And he said, no, I don't love my wife like that. I don't love my wife like Christ, who is authority, loves us in such a way that a man ought to be able to look at his wife and say, I'm going to love her regardless of whether or not I feel like it. I'm going to respond to the duty given me by the Lord. That when I am disobedient to the word, I'm not going to wait for my wife to win me over without a word and with a gentle and quiet spirit. But I'm going to be faithful to the Lord who died for me, even when my heart's not in it. This morning, we, as I said, we'll look closely at the biblical church, her submission, your and my submission, the submission of the universal church, the church of Jesus Christ. But we must be thinking together as a local church whose lives are intertwined in each other. We are grafted into each other. We are not just the universal church. We are a local church, which is a special entity. And we as a local church are no more special than any other local church. I simply mean that that is the manifestation of the church. This is why the Scripture, it's why the Lord, it's why I as a shepherd call you to be faithful to your local church. And you should call me to be faithful to our local church. What role then do you play? What role do I play? This morning, we'll examine the great commission given us by our Savior so that we will know best how to submit to him as our local church. That's your purpose statement this morning in your bulletin. That's the so that statement. That's the statement to go back to if you say, what in the world is he talking about? That's what I'm talking about. That's where I've started. That's where I'm getting back to. And this really is the the message that we hope to embrace and collectively be changed by today. The Lord would use us all the more effectively for his glory. Again, what role do you play in that? Now, we believe in what's referred to as a monergistic justification. You don't need to write that down, but you will hear that term. If you're, doing, if you're reading anything worth reading on justification, you're going to come across the term monergistic from the term mono, which means only or one. Justification is by God and by God alone. You don't justify yourself. You don't play any role in that. You exercise faith, faith in what God has accomplished. So justification is monergistic. There is a movement today that says that sanctification, beyond justification, is, in fact, monergistic, that only God participates in that. Now, let me put this in terms that you're certainly more familiar with. What we're saying is that God saves but we are not saying that only God is involved in our sanctification. The monergistic idea says that only God participates in your sanctification. And so you have the Keswick idea of let go, let God. Now, I understand that many times people will apply that term to, you know, somebody's anxious about something, they're fretting over it, they're spending too much time thinking about it, they're overanalyzing it. Some will say, hey, man, let go and let God. I understand that that's not necessarily what they're saying in that moment regarding sanctification. But the term is derived from Keswick theology that says you don't play a role in your spiritual growth. If not, what are the commands in the Bible for? You are to obey them. And no, unlike the hyper-Calvinist who would say that You don't do anything. God does it all. We say with a true biblical theology that you are involved. So really this morning what we have for you is is the hope of submitting to Christ that leads to the spiritual growth that you desire. Let's move forward, and I think you'll be energized and strengthened as we look more closely. In Philippians 2, verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, so Paul is clearly speaking of the consistency of the faithfulness, the obedience of the Philippians, not as in my presence only. So it wasn't just eye service. It wasn't just, wasn't just you doing you knew I wanted you to do. You, you weren't just obeying when I was in the room or when I was in town, but now much more in my absence, even more so you have exhibited obedience to the commands of Christ, the commands of the Scripture. He says then, and this is the imperative, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So which is it? Is it God doing the work because I'm fearing and and trembling before His greatness, uh, my accountability to Him, or is it me working it out? Which is it? Verse 13, For it is God. It's God. That's the answer. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But go back to the beginning of the imperative. What does Paul say? He says, You are to do this. You are to do this. It's a command work out. So it's you. It's actually you who are doing this. Todd, you just said it was God. I I know. But now you're saying it's me? Yes. So it is God who is doing a work in you that you are doing because of him. So you're not uninvolved, and God is not uninvolved. Uh, You're not the deist who says that God created everything. and just kind of let the ball roll, and we will see how it plays out. He'll wake up from his nap in a few thousand years, right? You believe that God is creator, and he is sovereign, and he is involved in the details. But he also calls you to be involved. Now, the simple-minded mindset that all of us in our new belief says it's got to be one or the other. God can't be sovereign while I have responsibility. If I have a will, God can't be sovereign in the details. Keep reading your Bible and stop pitting the Bible against the Bible. Get past that because that is only going to stunt your spiritual growth and prevent your ability to be worth anything for the body of Christ. If you're going to constantly wrangle over the fact that sovereignty is what it is and responsibility is what it is and somehow both can't be true, you're only going to be frustrated and do everything you possibly can to twist the Scripture to mean something that it doesn't mean. You're going to be frustrated with those who teach truth, not going to have any joy in legitimate sanctification. And watch your life, okay? Please hear me when I say this. If this is where you are, if you're still just fighting this battle, ask yourself, how effective are you in the body of Christ today? Be honest. Be honest. Are you involved in discipleship? Are you ministering to someone in an effective way that they would look back and say, you know what? My life has been so greatly effective as a result of that person's devotion to jesus christ or are you kind of spinning your wheels recognize that both are true you're called to submit to the sovereign god of heaven who is in fact the creator and sustains all things what do you think that means that he sustains all things means exactly that your life would be snuffed out in a moment if he stopped his sovereign exercise of the sustenance of your life. But you're responsible to eat and breathe. Both are true in all arenas of life, but in particular when it comes to spiritual growth. God has provided that which is necessary and he initiates it and he gives you the strength to do it and he has given you power in the gospel to obey him, but you must obey him. And if you get to the sullen and discouraged place of saying, you know, I'm just tired. I can't seem to get victory in this area. These areas. I struggle in these areas, and I I can't get any victory. I can't even be convicted by it, not really, not in the moment. What do you do? Well, you don't say, well... Christ accomplished it all. You don't say, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You heard that phrase recently? Tullian Chavidian, Billy Graham's grandson, who's a a well-known writer now, and is at the forefront of this gospel growth movement. It's tragically exhibited antinomian expressions, meaning that there's no need for the law expressing the idea that the law and the gospel are opposed to one another that they are in antithesis to each other that the law has no good in it and that was of Moses the idea of duty has become a bad word and so you just kind of glare at the gospel and expect that your heart's going to change and that growth and obedience will come naturally as a result of that Well, we wouldn't totally disagree with that right We would say, praise God for the gospel, and I am grateful for uh, what Christ has accomplished, and therefore I want to honor him, but it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that. If it were, you would never have sinned after that moment of experiencing a right understanding of the gospel. So what do you do? Do you stop being dutiful? Do you stop obeying the commands of Scripture? I'm not feeling it. In Philippians 2, Paul gives us great hope. In verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You know, can I just say it? Stop your complaining, please. You know, stop these rants that you think somehow are righteous and helpful to people that nobody's really responding to with anything other than, gee, what's his problem? If you are engaged in the practice of grumbling and complaining and there is some good going on in your life spiritually you're ripping the rug right out from underneath that you're you're undoing what the lord would otherwise be doing in you if you've only got negative things to say about people especially when they're not in the room and and by the way people notice people who love you notice and maybe they're gracious and they don't address it but they notice Know the pattern, and and if they really love you but they they fear you a little bit, they what they will likely do is begin to weigh your good against your bad. Well, he's got a lot of good things though going on. I know he's a complainer, but don't be that person. Why? Because the command of the scripture is this in light of how spiritual growth takes place. Do you understand what's going on here? Do you understand that the person who is committed to grumbling and complaining is the person who does not work out his salvation? Do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. This is Paul's pastor's heart here. This is Paul saying be faithful Faithful to not be a grumbler and a complainer. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But do so effectively. Be effective. That I would have reason to glory. And I wouldn't look back on my efforts poured into you and have to say, well, that was a waste of time. That I ran in vain. Paul is saying, please, you know, please don't put me in that precarious spot where my my efforts didn't pay off because you were too busy finding faults in everybody else. Well, before we look at this command given to us in Matthew twenty eight, let's look at the relationship between the law and the gospel. I assure you, they are not opposed to one another. There has been for some years now a resurgence of antinomianism. Again, antinomian, uh, anti, you know what anti means. nomianism from the Greek term namas or the Latin term namas, which is what, name or law. This was Luther's term for those who looked at the law and said, I don't need that. I'm no longer under law. I'm under grace. So there was an utter dismissal. You have, as I mentioned earlier, the development of Keswick theology that says, let go, let God. But the idea was that I no longer am responsible to anything given me in the Old Testament. In fact, I'm not even responsible for the law as displayed in the New Testament because I'm not under law. Paul's point in that you are not under law is that you are not under its penalty. You still have a moral obligation to obey the law of God. No, you cannot fulfill it, although Paul says in Galatians 5, you fulfill it by what? I love. It's a responsibility to love those. You say, no, it's not. Really? You having trouble loving someone right now? You have a duty to love that person. You have a responsibility to love that person. It's a command from the law. We have the privilege of the gospel. We have the power that the gospel of grace gives us to obey the law. They are not opposed to one another. This is commonly referred to as the free grace movement. I think I mentioned that earlier. Some are calling it the cross-centered movement. Are we cross-centered? Absolutely. Of course we are. We believe that the cross is the center of our life, our hope in Christ. Of course it is. But all I'm saying is that they've they've grabbed this terminology, free grace terminology, um, gospel growth, cross-centered. And they have erroneously defined those terms or used those terms to describe a spiritual growth that does not involve you. They think that duty is always... Wrong. Well, antinomianism is not new, and this flavor of antinomianism is not new in its expression that obedience only comes from love and gratitude, and that there is no place for duty. In John 1, verse 17, John says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So here's a passage that's frequently abused by these folks. Nowhere, nowhere does John say or indicate that grace and the law are opposed to one another. In Galatians 2, verse 19, Paul says for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. We we affirm that. We affirm that. But we also affirm the responsibility to live out one's sanctification and to proactively be involved in the work that Christ does in our lives. In Romans five nineteen, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. We've talked about this many times. When the law arrived in a codified format, the law represented more greatly and more clearly and kind of in a public fashion before man that he is not able to fulfill the law. And so it when it arrived, led to the increase of observance of sin. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, we affirm all of that. And we would say, yes, it is of grace. Growth is of grace. Responsibility is of grace. Obedience is of grace. Submission is of grace. Romans 8, verse 12. Paul says, So then, brethren, We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You are under obligation. Obligation to what? The law. You are under obligation to fulfill the commands that God has given you. Go back with me then to Romans 6 and verse 1. I left off at the end of Romans 5 where Paul has pointed out that when the law came in, sin increased. Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? If in the law's arrival, sin was shown to be what it is, it's exposed more greatly, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It's not a zombie walk. It's a walk that you are engaged in. Why? Because Christ gave you that new life, but now you put one foot in front of the other, and you walk that walk. And you don't do so just out of some sort of sitting in the corner and meditating on the gospel. But you meditate on the gospel, you memorize the gospel, you think about the gospel, and you are moved by the gospel. But there are moments when you do that, and you find yourself unwilling to obey the Lord. And what do you do? You could say it this way, you, you return to the duty of meditating on the gospel, but you also return to the duty of other commands of Scripture that require you to not engage in sexual immorality, that require you to not lie, that require you to tell the truth, that require you to not steal, that require you to share the gospel. You go back to those commands and you don't wait for a and feeling to pick it up and run with it. You know from Romans 7 that Paul struggled. But it's so important when we talk about Paul's struggle in Romans 7 that we don't stop there and say, oh, Paul struggled, I struggled, we all struggle. But no, that Paul would point us, having addressed that struggle, to what? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am what? Serving. Fulfillment of a duty. Serving what? The law of God. Yet on the other, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And it is because of the cross. It is because of the resurrection. It is because of the gospel. But it is not just an awareness of the gospel that motivates us in the moment to fulfill the duty. And I'm not talking about a fake it till you make it idea either. You know, just keep on moving. Just keep, you know... Fulfill the motions, you know, and eventually you'll feel it. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about obeying the sovereign authority of your life, doing what he has called you to do because he is your authority. It's obeying him because he is in control. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. It's that section in Romans 7 where Paul laments the the struggle, the controversy internally in his own life. But then in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore no longer any condemnation. We are saying that you want to honor him, you want to please him, and even as Paul the Apostle, 20 years into the Christian faith in Romans 7, is saying, I struggle, and I'm not going to wait for the Holy Spirit to do a work in me that makes me want to do what I know I should do. I'm going to do it there are massive amounts of people in this movement who are wallowing in spiritual immaturity because they're waiting for the Spirit of God to bonk them on the head and say, get moving. You're going to get an occasional bonk. That's a technical theological term in the Greek. But are you not empowered? Are you not empowered to obey Him? even when you're not feeling like a spiritual giant? Because sometimes you do. Am I right? Sometimes you're reading through probably something in the New Testament, and and you're excited. You're on fire, and you say, man, I love Christ. Wow, look what he's done for me. He bore my sins. And so I will die to sin, and I'm excited about dying to sin and living to righteousness. You have those moments if you're in Christ. Other times you don't. You don't have that unction. So what do you do? You don't become an antinomian. You don't say, well, there's no duty until God, you know, Recharges my battery. Oh. Y- you want to be an obedient child. By the way, in Ephesians, children who obey their parents, you think they're believers? No, they're not. It's the whole point. Paul's telling people how to raise their children. Unbelieving, unregenerate, depraved children obeying their parents, pleasing to the Lord. How's that possible? That's what the Scripture says. As an adult, you don't don't have that luxury anymore if you're not a believer. All that you do is born out of selfishness and desire for self-exaltation and self-pleasure and self-help and all those things. As a believer, though, you're no longer totally depraved. You still have the flesh, as we saw in Romans 7, but you have a new nature, and that new nature leads you to want to honor him, and to want to honor him, even if in the moment you don't really feel like honoring him, because he is your adoptive father. The father and the son is the vehicle of that adoption. Some passages that I think will lead to a richer understanding of the mindset of the Lord and how the rubber meets the road with regard to this. What does this look like? Todd, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. Some of this is a little heavy for me. I understand some of it. Uh, but tell me something about, you know, uh, what the Scripture says that I can take home with me and stop sinning in fill in the blank. That most people don't know about. I'm afraid they will. What do I do? Here you go. 1 Corinthians nine, twenty six. First 1 Corinthians 9, 26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul doesn't want to be a hypocrite. He doesn't want to be the man who teaches really well or not so well or whatever, but he walks away and his life completely overshadows whatever good his teaching may have brought about because he doesn't live it. So what does he do? He beats his body. He doesn't let go and let God. He disciplines himself. There you go say, but I got this, man, I got this tendency, you know, when I'm alone. And, and sometimes when I'm not alone, you know, I don't know what happens. It just overcomes me, and I have no self-control, and I just can't. Discipline yourself. Discipline yourself. You say, but I, I don't have any discipline. So you're stuck? That's what discipleship is for. You can discipline yourself. A lot of studies will show that people who are most effective in other people's lives can point back to someone else who is most effective in their life. Who are you leaning on to help you discipline yourself? Men, you might say, oh, my wife, she's my accountability partner. Really? My wife, she, she kept me hanging in there. You know, when I was struggling, it was my wife. Well, that's great if there's some truth in that, and, and I think that should be true to some degree. But, man, you're the head. Years ago, I was counseling a young man who was thinking about marrying a girl, and he said, you know, we, we can't seem to stop having sex. We can't seem to be obedient to the Lord. I said, well, what have you done? Well, I've, I've asked her, you know, to kind of help me with that. Really? You ask the person you're sinning with to hold you really? And what's the worst part about that? You could say, well, it's, first of all, it's stupid. Well, but the worst part about it is the pressure that it puts on her. That's how you're going to lead her once you're married? Honey, I know I've got these responsibilities to the Lord. I see the commands of the Scripture. You know, can you just, you know, would you just remind me, like, call me at work, you know, every few hours and tell me that I'm not supposed to look at other women. It's not headship. It's not obedience. The way Paul says it is, he says, be a man. He says, be a man. How about these words in Colossians 1? Here's another helpful passage with regard to how to apply this practically to your life. Colossians 1 verse 28. I love the the dual expression here of what happens in a shepherd's life that results in the growth of the body. He says, we proclaim him admonishing, it means warning. I talked about it earlier, exhorting, same thing. It's where we get the word nouthetic counseling from this verb. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so what a pastor is looking for is not more people, what he's looking for is the maturity of the people, the flock of God among him, so that they would communicate truth to others who would also begin the maturity process. And that, what's that going to result in? More people. But the goal is not more people. The goal is the maturity of those who would be faithful. And So what does he do? He, he strives for that. He longs for that. He desires it, but he works for it. Verse 29, for this purpose. What purpose? Their completion in Christ, their spiritual maturity, For this purpose also I labor. Sounds like a duty. I labor, striving according to his power. Sounds like the gospel. I strive, I labor according to his power, not my power. It's by God's grace, his power working in me, but I'm working, I'm striving. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. You know, not some paltry manner. You know, we can look back and say, oh, the Lord, the Lord, you know, really did some wonderful things. You know, those two, those two gals that used to argue a lot, they don't argue as much as they used to argue. Well, that's great. That's great. You know, so-and-so, he's, he stopped cheating on his taxes and that's great. Praise God. That's good. We want that. But is that, you know, would you, would you categorize that as God working mightily among the body? And I was thinking of in Colossians 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, okay, if you're a Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, that's work, set your mind on things above Keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, and if you're reading the ESV, it says uh, put to death. Your, Your NAS uses the older term, which is still accurate. Consider them Dead, the SV, newer, every bit as faithful to faithful manuscripts, everybody's faithful to that, but also using more modern terminology, not changing for the culture, but acknowledging that there is, in fact, a changing in language. Every language changes. So using the terminology of the day, put to death. Uh, in 1971, If someone had said, in our country, if someone had said, consider them to be dead, you would have understood that they were saying, make them dead. So the ESV says, put them to death. I'm reading from the NAS. And uh, it says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked. You were once a son of disobedience. You walked in these things. And Paul is saying now that you are no longer alive to those things. As he says in Romans 6, you're alive to righteousness, no longer alive to sin. You're dead to sin. You were dead to righteousness. Now that's all reversed. Walk that walk. Engage Put those things to death. Obey the law of God. Well, now to our text. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is what churches do. This is what churches do. You say, how come we haven't reached another nation yet? Well, we hope to in a few weeks. As I said, we're not even three years old yet. And the Lord has established an infrastructure, if I can call it that. We're going to talk about the structure of the church. Not today. Uh, but we will look at that and see how the Lord has established that and how he's done that in our church and given us a, a deep passion for taking the gospel to the uttermost part of the world. And what does that look like? Well, if it, if it doesn't look like what it should in a local church, how in the world is that, that going to be produced overseas? What am I talking about? I'm talking about discipleship. You say, here we go again. You're absolutely right because that's what the church is. The person who autonomously thinks that he somehow has it going on spiritually and he doesn't need discipleship, that might not be the worst thing about him. It might be that the worst thing about him is that he is not willing to disciple others. You say, well, I've already been through the stuff you've been through. I already know that stuff pretty well. What about the people who don't? What are you doing for them? This is it, friends. This is what the church is. It's about discipleship. That we as a church would be involved effectively, practically, every, yes, every single person in our church involved in discipleship. This is, this is not a dog and pony show where you come and listen to me teach and then walk away and do nothing that I tell you from the Scripture. Specifically, you would be involved in Pouring your life into others while being poured into by others. The Lord talks about discipleship. Isaiah talks about discipleship in Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50 verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. You doing that? Can you, assist, can you stay in a weary person with a word because that person knows uh, that you love him or her? right? Yeah, I can say that about, about our church, that that's the culture uh, that has been developed, that many of you have the inroad in many people's lives to give a word that results in encouragement and the ability to kind of hang in there. Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You've heard people say, you know, i got this priority list. It's God first, then my family, then the church, then my job, da-da-da-da-da. Really? Really? Why do you need a priority list like that? Why wouldn't you just be faithful to God and the church and your family and your job and your neighbors? Be faithful. Don't pit them against each other by saying this one comes first and always first. Yeah, you can't manage the church if you can't manage your home. But the whole point is that you would be involved in the management of the church. How do you do that? You lead your family to have a love for the church by discipling them, but also by encouraging them to be involved in discipleship with others moving on to the next phrase the idea of this being done throughout all the nations Revelation 5 verse 9 and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation they were purchased they were their sins were propitiated God's wrath is satisfied in the moment on the cross, and they were in that moment purchased. It was not a potential purchase. It was an actual purchase. And so men from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, so we're to go to every nation to find those for whom Christ died. To Be faithful to that call. And to do what? To baptize them. Baptize them into the body of Christ. You know, we don't, we don't do freelance baptisms. Hey, there's a church over there on Wabash. They might baptize you. Why don't you go over there and then... No. No. Who would we baptize? Someone who says, I, I love the Anchor Bible Church. I want to serve there. I want that to be the heart of my life, the devotion of my life. Revelation 7, verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb again from every nation all tribes all peoples all tongues Christ died for people in every one of those categories and they will show that they have been purchased how? by crying out Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we are to baptize them in what name? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then teaching them what? Teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Teaching them to fulfill the duty of Scripture. 1 John 5, verse 3 for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith you say I, I, I feel like sometimes they're, they're burdensome commandments themselves are not burdensome But why do they feel at times like they are burdensome? Because of the flesh, idols, diversions, distractions. certainly feels like it's burdensome. So if it is burdensome, why is it burdensome? Because I have made it burdensome. But the commandments themselves are not, in and of themselves, burdensome. You can obey them, and you must, and you should... You have the power to do so. Back in 1 John 2, uh, 1 John 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. In other words, there's a substantial degree of maturity such that I don't mean that he's a spiritual giant. But there is maturity such that he proves he's in Christ because he does obey him. Well, what better way to end the gospel than for the Lord himself to say, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Does that not help? Sure it does. Yeah, he's with me. You know, in that section in Philippians 4, We often forget this part, I think, where we are commanded to not be anxious. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You know what Paul says right before that? For God is near. How near? He's in you. He dwells in you. He resides with you always because He is in you always. And you don't need to wait for another person and misinterpret and misapply Matthew 18, that says, where two or more are gathered, there will the Lord be also. Where one or more are gathered, there will the Lord be also. What the Lord's talking about there in Matthew 18 is church discipline, meaning go ahead and go forth because the Lord has established in heaven what you're about to enact on earth. So don't fear because both of you can agree that that's what's going on. But if Christ is in you, you can be involved in obeying his commands, in taking the gospel that looks like discipleship, it is relationships. You can do that. You can faithfully be involved in baptism of all the nations. You can do that. You say, well, I can't go. Well, m- maybe you can, maybe you can't, but you can be involved. There are ways you, as a faithful member, faithful ligament of the Anchor Bible Church, can be involved in that in acts one luke says the first account i composed to theophilus about all that jesus began to do and teach it's the book of luke here he says until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the holy spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen would you agree that those are duties responsibilities. he had given them orders. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. We are doing what we can in our Jerusalem, so to speak, to communicate the gospel in our midst in such a fashion that we would be capable of doing it In surrounding regions, as well as the uttermost part of the world. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering. That's in the past now. That has been accomplished. He's been crucified. He's been resurrected. By convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Father, thank you for the clarity of your commands. That you would not only give us commands, though, but you would empower us to obey them. That we would not embrace a false theology that says that I must only do what I have been called to do when I'm feeling like doing it, a a hyper-Calvinistic mindset, a Keswick mindset, sadly, what's come to be known as a free grace or a gospel growth mindset, but that we would love to obey you even when our hearts are prone to wander. And Father, we especially thank you that you've given us this specific command to baptize men and women among all nations. We don't know who they are. Some of them we've certainly not even met. But we trust that you will use our faithfulness to cause our paths to cross and we will have the great privilege of communicating the gospel to them that by the power of the Spirit you would give them justification by faith that we then would have the privilege to nurture sanctification calling them not to wait for you to give them a feeling, but calling them to obey you even as you have commanded us to obey all your commands. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.